1: Fine. You dressed so fine. The you threw the bump to dime in your prime, in didn't you? People called, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging around for your next meal. How does it feel? How does it feel to be without a home, like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone? Hey everyone, welcome to Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the Freewheelin' Rob Kelly, and we are coming to you live from the Tattooed Mom on South Street part of the 2019 Philadelphia Podcast Festival. (laughs) Here with me to discuss one of Bob Dylan's finest songs, in fact, one of popular music's finest songs, period. 1965's Like a Rolling Stone is our very special guest, musician and music critic, Tom Moon. Tom, welcome to the show.
2: Great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much, Tom. Uh, We will get into my history with you as a film, as a Dylan critic, a Dylan reviewer all these years. I've been reading you for a long time. Uh, Before we get to the song in question, though, since you're new to the show, I have to ask you, how did you become a fan in the first place?
2: Well, when I was growing up, my mom remarried when I was 10 years old and I suddenly had we it became a Brady Bunch kind of house and I had an older brother for the first time and we ha- shared a room and he was into incredible amounts of rock and roll and in those days headphones had a lot of leakage like if you if you wore headphones at night you would hear the the, the sound would be in the room and I basically got my musical education from whatever he was listening to, which was a lot of Dylan, also a lot of Allman Brothers, uh, CCR, a lot of classic rock. Um, And so it was a very interesting window into Dylan. If you think about not really being able to hear the words, (laughs) but just sort of hear the vibes of these records, which is how I did everything first. I, I heard the, the, the sonics way before I paid any attention to the lyrics. At what point did you, you were able to discern,
1: like, oh, wait, this guy, I like this guy.
2: Yeah. Well, it was probably, you know, we were room, we've shared a room for like seven years till he went to college, (laughs) and it was probably within the first couple of years, I was like, okay, I I need to see what the, who this guy is and what the records are. And uh, I'm sure he had that record. The, uh, The one I remember the best was Bringing It All Back Home was the first one that I became aware of. Oh, I need that, you know. Do you, oh. do you remember hearing like a Rolling Stone for the first time? I I remember hearing it ambiently through his headphones before I ever knew about it, and I, I I did I I think I was kind of aware of it that way before the you know before even hearing it on the radio or or seeking it out and actually dropping the needle myself. There's a quote
1: from uh, Annie DeFranco who did a bunch of shows where she opened for Bob, and she was yeah. asked once. Uh, you know, like, are you a fan, or did you were you a fan growing up? And she said that it's like he's like furniture, where yes. he's just so prevalent that you don't even really think about when you discover it. And I don't remember the first time I heard like a wrong Stone. I'm sure I heard it before I ever was a fan. Yeah, but it was just it's 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 a phrase in the culture. It was just you just heard of it. Right. And so I can't pinpoint the first time that I ever heard it, but it's. It's one of those songs that, you know, I mean, the man has got a a career of 50 years of great songs. But this is, I think, in a lot of ways, the preeminent song. And I will get into the reasons why I I think that is. We do want to discuss a little bit. I I do want to ask you about, like, how did you get into becoming a music critic? And did you, like, how did you find your way to actually reviewing Bob's shows?
2: So I went to music school. I studied music at the University of Miami. And uh, during my very first semester there... I heard about this scam where the school newspaper would give you records, and this is the, the old vinyl era before the new vinyl era now, uh, and y- you know they would give you records if you'd write about a few of them. so I went there and I took you know four or five records, some things I knew about I, one of the first ones I did was the Steely Dan record, and uh, they they liked what I wrote, and they asked me to come back and do it again and. So, I liked this scam because for every one that i that I wrote about, I had like a stack of ten, so <laughs> I thought that was great um, and out of that, someone at the miami I was living in Miami, and someone at the Miami Herald actually like took notice of this little uh, the college newspaper and was they were looking for critics and I was incredibly lucky this is years down the road, years after doing that. That uh, one of the editors at the Herald's art section was patient enough to teach a kid, a musician no less, uh, how to you know sort of how to write for a newspaper. And you know in those days, uh, the the deal was if you were going to get hired at a newspaper, you'd have to do cops and courts for a year or two <laughs> you'd have to go to city council meetings and you'd have to basically live the life of a, of a cub reporter and I got to bypass all that and I was very lucky to, do, to, to just be able to write about music which was the only thing I cared about at all and uh, so shortly after leaving college I was writing these little tiny record reviews and stuff and getting paid and I thought that was the best thing ever uh, it, was, it was way better than the music work I was doing, which was playing weddings and bar mitzvahs <laughs> in Miami, which, uh, you know, is a certain thing. Some people really like it. I, I think I would drive myself crazy if I'd have just done that. What was your first show, Dylan's show, that
1: you got to review? First
2: Dylan show was in Miami. I don't remember where it was. I knew you were going to ask me this. <laughs> and uh, where or even when. It was in the 80s, and it was one of those... Uh, tours with the you know like a multi-act bill okay and uh i hated it i was <laughs> like i didn't get this was in the 80s right so he said in the period where he's changing up the lyrics and the phrasing which i now really love but as someone who was a young person who was not really at the point where i was able to appreciate the Quote, "Quote, unquote," jazz-like phrasing that he was doing, or the uh, the sort of liberties he was taking with the songs. I wanted to hear the songs, period. And I th- and I felt, and actually, this you know, this was borne out after this review ran. I felt that the audience wanted that too. And this is interesting. A lot of Dylan since you know the beginning of it, we're talking about the Never Ending Tour a minute right. ago. A lot of Dylan f- from from the last you know whatever fifteen, twenty, thirty years has been like him figuring out how he wants to reapproach the these songs on a nightly basis and that's the draw mm-hmm. and uh b- but it took a while for him to get his his hardcore people to the place where they were going to listen uh, go for that and take the ride with him and you know in the 80s that was a time when people were you know we were having Madonna shows with ridiculous choreographed lighting and all that and you know this guy was doing this thing and he was deviating from whatever script. The only script that people had were the songs themselves. And if you, if you were g- going to mess with those and toy with that stuff in a big way, you were, y- you, know, you were exposing yourself, as he did over and over again and still does, to this uh, charges of sacrilege. Right. So it took me a long time to realize that, that you know, and certainly in that first review, I did not, that, you know, that there was an art in that. And, uh, you know, he was one of many artists who helped me, y- you know. These these jobs as that you have as a critic, your work as a critic is often learning about what you don't know and, and gauging your response based on being in it and tr- having an honest reaction to what you're hearing and then sort of uh, trying to process that and put it into words so that other people get it. And often you would not know how far off you were until you heard from... Ten, twelve, thirty. in the case of some of the reviews I did you know I wrote about new kids on the block and I got literally 150 letters from from kids that were outraged by by the fact that I didn't think new, new kids on the block well, I'm sorry Why, for, was I'm sorry ghost. for sending that I apologize <laughs> I
0: didn't mean to do that.
2: <laughs> was very
1: very passionate at the time <laughs> So I mean, I mean, people are shocked about how, like, with little regard, he seems to regard his own songs, like in terms of messing well, with well, them. Well, no, but
2: see, uh, th- that's right, and that's what I felt then. But but now I think he is what he's looking for is a phrasing challenge and a way for to land the ideas so that they sound like they're coming today. That yes, these are new ideas, that these are ideas that he's still working with, um, and of course his lyrics are are. T- entangled, they're intertwined. They're very compacted. You, you know, uh, people are making whole lives and, and writing books about these. Uh, you, you know, an analysis of the lyrics line by line, which you know, in my opinion, that's a waste of time. Uh, oh uh, shoot! The, the, you know, applying <laughs> uh, applying the literary criticism template to Bob Dylan, you you, you end up suffocating what makes it great and one of the things that he's been really good at as a performer in in this never-ending tour period is to kind of say you know these can be anything you know right uh something can be a waltz one night and uh you know full-on rock and roll extravaganza the next night and something really down tempo and calm and uh relying on the band's uh, you know, vocal harmonies, and then other nights he's he's just taking it all himself, and he's you know r- r- twisting the, the the words and phrasing them in such a way that you 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 go, well, that's not what I would have done. That's not what he did when he recorded it. But <laughs> there's something about that moment. He's going for something, and this is the thing that all the great jazz players did, and all and all what we want out of music is. The people who are engaged in it on stage are taking a swing. They are not just phoning it in and punching the 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 same button that they punched before. And you know, hats off to him because when he really started to play guitar during this never-ending tour period, I mean, he was he was becoming incendiary. He was making the music alive in ways that none of the other guitar players, and he's had some monsters, ever did. You know, I, I, I it, like what he brought as a rhythm guitar player to his own music in that period was fascinating to
1: me. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, I, I've been to enough Dylan shows that, that there's something you you can tell that goes on when he starts playing a song and it doesn't sound. All the people are like, "What, what, what song is this?" Right. I don't know what song, you know. <laughs> and then you then you get three lines in, and you go, "Oh, it's Mr. Right. Tambourine Man." Yeah. I get it now. All right, yeah. all right, you know, And that's just he. I think he just loves confounding people like that. He just sort of enjoys and. That, it, it took me a little while to get used to that. And now, yeah. like you say, I love it because it's like, well, I have the versions I love on the records. Right. I have They're never going right. away. This thing, I'm going to own these records forever. I can enjoy that. But now I'm going in this moment to hear what he's doing with it. How does he feel
2: about, like, a Rolling Stone tonight? tonight? Yeah, right. Which he might and, actually
1: literally be doing as we're talking. About right. And,
2: and, you know, that one is one of the few where he's kind of like... You know, at this point, he's, he's obligated to play it, right? If you, <laughs> if you go to a Dylan, Dylan show now and he doesn't, what's that like? <laughs> you know, I mean, I've been to them. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. We all probably have. A lot of people that love Dylan have had that experience. But what is that? You, you know, that's like, you know, I remember when Losing My Religion uh, was such a huge hit. And R.E.M. Stipe was like, we do that every night. It's not our song now. It belongs to them. You know, the people who come see see us belongs to them. I like that that idea. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a jukebox and play it the same way you did on the record, and that's right. what we're talking about with. Right,
1: you know. yeah, uh, we should get into the history of the recording of this song a little bit, obviously, because it's, it's, it, the, the story of how this song got recorded is almost as famous as the song itself. Is that he had done a tour of England, and back then in England, they had only had the acoustic records, which nowadays seems impossible that there was like, stuff didn't make it over to the overseas right. in time. So he was doing this acoustic tour and he was bored. Yeah. He was bored. And there a lot of that is documented in the in the Don't Look Back documentary and he was yeah. really kind of bored. And he apparently had even considered, from what I read, uh getting out of music entirely yeah. and writing books. And he wanted he was writing that book Tarantula. And thank goodness that didn't pan out <laughs> the way it's supposed to um but he was really considering saying, did I get everything out of music which is amazing to right. think at 24 years old, right. he was already like, what I it? think I'm it's, done with it. It's
2: his fifth record, too? Yeah. He's five records it's five in? Five records really? in,
1: and he's already like, eh, whatever. Yeah. But anyway, on the flight back from England, uh, apparently, he wrote what he called 30 pages of vomit. Yeah. Which was this angry screed at somebody. Uh, you know, Some undefined, per- maybe in his mind, it was somebody in particular. Of course, it doesn't really matter who it is. It's more right. of an undefined person. And out of that 30 pages... He distilled it down to this song, to this Like a Rolling Stone. So he shows up at the studio to work on his next album, which would end up being Highway 61 Revisited. He's with his producer, Tom Wilson, uh, who he always had a relatively contentious relationship with, although I don't know any producer that Bob Dylan doesn't have a contentious (laughs) relationship with. Uh, And they sit down to start working on this song. And I guess now would be a good time to play an initial version of it that appeared on the Bootleg series. Um, which is you listen to this thing, and it is kind of hard to imagine hearing this and then being able to extrapolate the greatness of what you know. What he what he's hearing in his head is this thing. So let's let's play a, a selection of this.
0: Once upon a time, you dressed so fine. Through the bums a dime in your prime Didn't you? <laughs> People call, say beware doll You're bound to fall You thought they are all getting you You used to make fun about Everybody that was hanging out Now you don't loud now you don't seem so proud about having to scrounge your next meal and how does it feel how does it feel the me
1: Ain't that the truth? Yeah. You know? I mean, you hear that, you go, oh, that's a hit record. Yeah. You know? What the hell is that thing? <laughs> but they kept working on it. And I guess the big sort of turn of this is, of course, Al Cooper. Al Cooper, yeah. Because Al Cooper... Well, you tell him. You know it, I'm sure, well, as well
2: as I do. Tell that story well, about how and, Al Cooper ended up on this record. Well, first of all, the, you, you know, it's funny because in over the years I've read varying accounts of how many pages of vomit it was. <laughs> uh the the rolling stone at one point said the magazine rolling stone said 10. uh say, and has a quote there's a quote from him somewhere floating around saying 20. and then 30 is is common so it's like it just shows you that uh, that the 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 whole like specificity thing at that time people were not People were just taking him at, at his word. And if he just said 50, we would have been all like, oh, okay, fine, 50. That, that must have been a real epic, you yeah. know? What was De- Desolation Row then? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Um, but so Al Cooper is apparently a fly on the wall. He's very young at this time. He's he's had no, production cre- no, no uh, performance credit on a record at that point. He's like 21 or something. And he's there with the keyboard player... Uh, Paul Paul Griffin, uh, Paul, I believe. Paul Griffin, yeah, he's a guest of Paul Griffin's in the studio, and he's in the control. Because everybody room. wants to be in on a Dylan recording. It's yeah, the right. coolest and, thing in and, ever. Right. is just to be able to sit there and watch this guy do this, especially in this moment where it's like this is the beginning of it, and I'm sure Al Cooper in the back of his mind is like, okay, yeah, this could be. You know, I I, I got a ch- maybe I'll get a chance to show. So he starts out on guitar. And he, they, they, you know, he, he's like just noodling around on guitar. That doesn't go so well. No one likes that. Because he watches Michael Bloomfield play, right, and right. he
1: says, "My God, Michael Bloomfield tuning up is better than yeah. I can do yeah. for real." So what the hell am then I doing? he goes here?
2: back into the control room, and at some point during this time, when the, when this was a waltz, he uh, he he met, he shows up at the organ now. Keep in mind at that time he was not an organ player he he he, he, he was really uh, concentrated on the guitar that was his that was his instrument so everybody 's a little bit weird and Tom Wilson, the quote i I found the you know Tom Wilson is trying to talk Dylan out of you after they 've t- done a couple of takes where by the way, Al Cooper is just almost like trying to play by ear, so he 's like He's behind and he's he's slow and, he, and there's a lot of time where he lays out. He's being very careful, but you know the producer Tom Tom Wilson is like, he's not an organ player. You don't need him. We'll get you whoever you want to play the Hammond organ. And you know, there's Dylan literally was, audio of Tom Wilson that they kept
1: reeling. You hear yeah. Tom Wilson say. What are you doing in there, man? Yeah, like right. he literally is like, "Who's yeah. that guy? What are you yeah. doing? Get right. out of there!" And because Bob, I guess, was like, I, "That's fine." Yeah. they just let it roll. But I right. mean, Tom Wilson literally discovers him. What are you doing in there? Right. Get out of there! He says, "Okay,
2: all right, it's fine." Yeah. And so, and, and if you listen, there are you, you know on the organ, there's there's a lot of uh, sonic variation that's possible. For organ players like to like to mess with the stops and change the the pressure of of the instrument and how it how it responds and how it sounds and you hear that all over the place except on this it's like it's just set it and forget it he's not doing any of that he's just leaving the sound is the 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 essential organ sound is the same the whole way right so they they end up doing nine takes of this
1: and uh with each one by the time they got to the ninth one they're all just exhausted and despairing because they're like we're never going to get this so then they go back and they listen to the playbacks and they go wait a minute track two yeah that was the that's the one that's the and they figure out that that's the one and that is the that is the version that got put out and apparently even maybe it was that night or i mean again you never know with these, these right. stories yeah yeah but apparently even that night they cut an acetate of the song right. they bring it over to some columbia executive at some party and he goes oh my god what is this and they said well what are we going to do with this it's six, six minutes long. seven singles yeah. are not six yeah. minutes long but they're like we got to push this out we got to yeah. put this is beyond anything we could and right. so it was rushed put out onto a 45 where they had to put half of it half on, on one, one, side one side and half on the other uh and it ends up you know hits it hits the airwaves and you know the thing about this song is you know we well, well, you know what? Let's play the opening note to it because that, that's uh, that's an important thing about how this, this song actually so. This is the version that appeared on the record, so this is the actual version.
0: Once upon a time, you dressed so fine through the bumps of dime in your prime. Say beware doll You're bound to fall You thought they were all
1: So, I, one of the things I want to talk about is that opening, that rifle shot by Bobby Gregg. Because in other songs that Dylan has done, in fact, on from a Buick 6, which is just three yeah, songs down later. on the album, yeah. that song also opens with a, with a, a snare drum shot. Yeah. But it's differently orchestrated here. They let it hang for just that extra half second where you get the reverb yeah. and it just, it's like that is announcing itself. It's yeah. like this is nothing like you've ever heard before, it's just that bang. And what? it just You're just immediately set off of Like wait a minute
2: this, this doesn't sound like anything I've heard before That and how, how the band Is just right in it From the first downbeat It's like that crack Is one of those things You know I mean Born to Run has a Has a snare roll That goes on for a minute That launches us into that If the band doesn't hit Beat one on Born to Run. That's on them. There, you know. But this is another thing. This is like it could be anywhere. Like the tempo could be anywhere in in the scheme of things, and they agree. Not only do they agree on it, but they are cohesive from jump. And that to me is like like as as great as the the hit itself is, because it's like an arresting thing. It's like what follows it is so in the pocket and and so completely nails what what this ride is going to be. Absolutely. So I'm going to quote a little bit more of the lyrics here. He goes on. It says. You've gone
1: to the finest school all right, Miss Lonely, but you only used to get juiced in it, and nobody has ever taught you how to live on the street, and now you find out you're going to have to get used to it. You said you'd never compromise with the mystery Tramp, but now you realize he's not selling any alibis as you stare into the vacuum of his eyes and ask him, do you want to make a deal? And then he goes on, how does it feel? How does it feel? And there's more lyrics we'll get to mm. in a moment, but there is something I want to ask you about. First of all, the opening, the once upon a time, right. it immediately, I mean, right now there is a movie in theaters, once upon mm. a time in Hollywood, great movie, right. by the way, mm. uh, which imme- you, you start something with once upon a time, you're putting right. something in this kind of timeless storybook land, by putting this incredibly modern thought, but yet he's right setting it in, a, a, like a lot of Dylan songs, in this weird kind of amorphous once upon a time. This is like a weird little story I'm telling. And it just, again, it yeah. puts you back on your heels a little bit because it's such
2: a strange way to open the song. Right. And if it is a woman, which we think it is, that he's, uh, he's addressing, yeah, right, Miss Lonely, right. you know, it, it's like he, for him, she is a princess. She's also this, like, spoiled brat. She's, she's, she's got a lot of different guises. And, you know, for him to start it at this place where, you know, once upon a time, it's a fairy tale until uh, until it's not. And, right. yeah. um, you know, it's like you've talked before on other shows about William Blake, and this is songs of experience in a way. But set in this kind of like fantastical, almost absurdist thing, where you know you could you could read it as a you know read it as a fairy tale all the way through at your peril. It's not you know, but it but it does start that way. It puts you in a place like okay, I'm going to tell you a story now, right? Know? And then with a
1: lot of these songs, he's got these this sort of uh, crazy bunch of people that populate his songs. I mean, I you know there you could do entire books about just the characters that fill these songs and he continues on. He says, you never turned around to see the frowns on the juggles and the clowns. When they all come down to do tricks for you, yeah. you never understood that it ain't no good. You shouldn't let other people get your kicks for you. You used to ride on a chrome horse with your diplomat who carried on his shoulder a Siamese cat. Ain't it hard when you discover that he really wasn't where it's at after he took from you everything that he could steal. And I mean, well, I know you want to talk about the jugglers and the clowns yeah. line, but I mean, again, the rhyme, the, the short rhyme schemes within these long lines, I mean, he's got this, you know, and it hard discover that he really wasn't where it's at, like a diplomat. Every yeah. line is right. And it's just like sort of these rhymes are piling on top of each other. And I find when you listen to the song, how many times you hear it, you're always kind of playing catch up because you're like, you're, you're just getting hit with so much stuff. You're yeah. like, wait, well, hold on. Wait,
2: what are we do- Who's Wait, what? <laughs> that kind of thing. Truly. Um, but that that verse, the thing that gets me about that verse and it t- there's a few places on on this record where he talks in a way about kind of looking behind the curtains uh, seeing the people who are per- in performative acts who are like you know the jugglers and the clowns who are actually sneering at their audience or they're you know they're looking at them with suspicion he, like the the act of perf- like I think at this point in his life, he was aware of the rituals of rock and roll and the, the train seal aspect of this work, <laughs> which a lot of people talk about that, you know, that, that as much as you can be immersed in the act of delivering these songs in front of an audience, there's also this aspect of it where it's like you're... A, uh, you're a trained seal. you're expected to do this at this point. and if you don't if you don't hit those marks, you you, you know you you incur the wrath of the audience. and this this phrase and the uh, and there are a couple other ones like this where he's like kind of like looking behind the curtain. I think that's the, the and I don't I, I think he was using these lyrics as guides for other things on the record. And in this case, I think he's really talking about like what it means to. To like grow up and realize that the people who are there ostensibly f- to provide you with delight may not actually be delighted while they're doing it, right? And, and that that there's that the, the, there's that thing where you know, if you're playing for people that are especially now when you're playing for people that are paying hundreds of dollars a seat, you know. Uh, it's like, pay attention to the frowns because that there, there's something to that, you know. And I I love that line. I think that to me says says more about uh, where Dylan is in terms of contending with his own rise and contending with what the expectations were both night to night as he performed, but also almost more record to record, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you, if you watch the Don't Look Back documentary, I mean, you'll see how much, how besieged he was by people that just wanted to be in his orbit, yeah. because in 1965, Bob Dylan was the coolest thing that had ever walked the earth. I mean, maybe the Beatles, but the Beatles' coolness was dispersed over four people. and four people to take that energy and four people that could commiserate with each other because obviously they could under hey what's it like being a beatle? you i'll talk to the other guy who's a beatle. he knows what (laughs) it's like bob dylan's one guy yeah one guy and he's being hit on by and i mean that in every sense of the word that's right by so many people and i can imagine that he's just like there's got to be so many fake and phony people that are hitting on him and uh, you know, many people have said this is, this is aimed at Joan Baez because they had had a falling out. It doesn't even matter whether it's a, first of all, I don't think it is, but even if so it was, exaggerate. it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Because any more than you just walking by and seeing a leaf fall that inspires you to think of something else, it's not yeah. about the leaf that you just told him you wrote, right. it's about something else. Right. that was inspired. So it doesn't matter what it is. It's that Bob is pointing out, hey, you know you think you're in this space and I'm here to point out to tell you you're not in this space or you are and it's going to be damaging to you and it's sort of funny because this record Highway 61 and i don't want to get too far off the song but Highway 61 as a record has is two very parallel sides and this yeah. song has a parallel on side two which is Queen Jane approximately yeah. which we talked about on the show previously which is a much more gentle version that's actually a little more friendly mm-hmm. towards the person he's talking to He's kind of like hey it's okay it's yeah, a, yeah. He calls her Queen Jane, right. it's like, it's all right, you'll be fine. This one, he is more like, F you, yeah. you idiot. These are people yeah. who are going to bring you down. So then the, here's the final verse is, princess on the steeple and all the pretty people, they're drinking, thinking, that's why I love that, drinking, thinking, mm-hmm. that they got it made, exchanging all, price, all kinds of precious gifts and things, but you better lift your diamond ring, babe, you mm-hmm. better pawn it, babe. used to be so amused at Napoleon and rags and the language they used, go to him now go to him now he calls you you can't refuse when you ain't got nothing you got nothing to lose you're invisible now you've got no secrets to conceal how does it feel and then it goes on from there and i mean ultimately this song is about liberation because when you realize when you don't have anything left there's nothing that can harm you and yeah. it, the the song transforms in that end from it being this sort of personal attack to being like wait a minute maybe i am like a, maybe being like a rolling stone isn't such a bad thing because i'm free from the burdens that anybody could possibly sh- put put on me
2: yeah oh that's how i hear it for sure and that idea of liberation out of like emptiness and out of sort of acknowledging all all your own like confronting your own shortcomings and your own stuff and you, you know through that learning something about what to keep what to let go of and finally, that you're invisible, you can let go of all of it. That's wonderful. That's that, 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 you know, that, then it's no longer, there's no bitterness in that really. I, I hear, I don't, I mean, it's still, he's still delivering it with bitterness, but the 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 idea the sentiment is not that right and there's there's a part in the recording of this where i think it's after
1: verse two where he just goes ah he just yeah and it feels like that's him at his most sort of unguarded he's just like feeling it he knows it's working and he's just like oh my god this is great and and so the you know uh i've done a hundred episodes of pod dylan so and i've been saving this song for a special moment and this counts Uh, because there's, you know, hey, and we'll get, hey, I'm going to wax your car in a moment at the end of the show. But, uh, um, (laughs) but. uh, (laughs) Well, now. Thank you, Dave.
2: You're all all going to have this was
1: a family show. (laughs) You're all going to have to leave. So, but the the, the reason, the reason, I mean, the man's been writing songs for 50 years. He's been covering songs Mm. for 50 years. And we'll get into the legacy of this in a moment. But the thing that I, and as much as I don't ever want to say, there's one song there's one song that's greater than all the other songs because, you know, it's all personal, you know I mean? Like a Rolling Stone is not my favorite song of his. It's up there, but it's not my all-time favorite. But the reason I feel like this song is sort of him at this is it is because, and um, not to plug, there's another podcast I do about the TV show, MASH, and, mm-hmm. and and there's an episode of MASH where someone asks Hawkeye Pierce, have you brought any books with you overseas? And he says, the dictionary. Why? Because it has all the other books in it, <laughs> which is... You know, <laughs> whoa, you know, what a line. Yeah. And so when I think about that, I think about this song, because the line in this is, how does it feel? Yeah. And to me, that is what Bob Dylan is asking in every song that he has ever written or ever sang. Yeah. That is what he's asking you. He, for as much as the reputation that he has as being the guy who's standing on a stage telling you, you know, time's error changing yeah. or yeah. Let, oh, lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, he's telling you what's what. He really isn't. He's asking the yeah.
2: listener how does it feel? In any given situation, he's asking you. Right, he's, he's laying out. Hattie Hattie Carroll's a great example of this. He's just laying out a situation and allowing, allowing for and inviting and causing reaction among, among his listeners. And you know, that, let's, let's be real. To do that a few times in a career is awesome. And it, it's a, a feat. It's a magic trick. To say something in concise language that has meter to it and to put something like that across is you know we don't we don't see that all the time you know look at what we're can look at what's out there right now that was issued you know in the last six months and that will prove that uh in a way there's some good stuff i'm not i'm not <laughs> slagging everything but you know the 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 level of can you bring a listener to a, a, the point where they really have to feel something where they cannot uh, ignore that there's uh, a bunch of stuff going on both you know in terms of what the message is what the theme of this is what he's what he's tearing apart what he's unpacking and then you, you know how the the evidence laid bare he's almost like a lawyer in a way i think of that sometimes and he would hate to, to hear that, but uh, be, you know but he's really like you know sort of throwing a bunch of stuff out there a bunch of different images you know in various songs di- uh, different kinds of image devices, different kinds of metaphors, and you know of course, like a Rolling Stone itself, one of the great metaphors, and certainly apt for this you, you know for what he's what he's trying to lead you to, but he's not trying to tell you how to feel right. anything he's just saying, all right. Look at all this. How does it feel? and And it's like you know anytime our our artists and you know Faulkner was great at that, I think John Fogarty was really great at that. I've been listening to a lot of his, his ccr and it, like there's, there's a thing that he does in similarly compact language you're talking about like you know but like Dylan. Just does it over and over again. Sometimes in these stanzas that are so compacted and so like word happy and just one, thi- one idea on top of the other to, to where they're crashing together, and you almost have to go, okay, wait a minute, that's, that's like too much. I can't even, I'm dizzy, you know? <laughs> and, but then, you know, with this, the melody's very measured, there's a lot of repetitive notes. He's, he's making sure that you get, as he throws out these various images as evidence, He's leading you to a place where you know. All right, how does it feel? Yeah. Figure it out. You know. Deal with it because it's there. It's all there. You know. He's
1: asking you, the listener, to lean in and think about how does it feel. And I again, I feel like no matter what song he's doing, that is what he's asking you. And I that's why I feel like this song is sort of it encompasses all the other songs because that's
2: ultimately what he's doing it is a really good place to start if you have somebody that doesn't know Dylan and you know wants to begin to like Go down that rabbit hole, and it is, and it is a rabbit uh, hole. Right. Uh, you, you know, this is like one where the devices are at a really high level, but the music is simple enough. And you know, there's no bridge. There's no like, <laughs> it's like an A section and a B section over and over again. And you, you know, the 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 chord progression is ingenious, but it's not in any way fancy. The whole thing is is at the gut level, and he never he never has to deviate from that. And so, you know, if someone is just beginning an exploration of this kind of music and Dylan particularly, why not start there? This is a high mountain. Yeah. Well, this and this ended up we know we'll talk a little bit about the
1: legacy of the song. I mean, this became Bob Dylan's most successful single. Right. It reached number 2 on the charts. He could never quite crack the Beatles. Uh, which I have to think is probably you know a certain amount of frustration, but also hey, it's the Beatles, you know I mean, right. they had ninety other songs on the top 10. I'm sure he probably bitched about that to George Harrison at some point you know? probably like, hey, yeah. know man
2: but but you know this one this was a tough one because, like you said before about the length, I mean you know it was the six, Beatles six were, minutes and five the, seconds yeah the, the Beatles in nineteen sixty five nothing was was cracking four minutes, really, or four four minutes, (laughs) 30 seconds.
1: Yeah, I mean, so they said this became his most successful song. Uh, Later on, uh, in terms of uh, how it became this legendary thing, I mean, it's been covered by... Yeah. Forty million people at this point, which is t- it's a tough song to do. It, it, you know, it's 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 not easy to kind of crack the the rhythm of it. Exa- and Bob himself isn't always able yeah. to get it right. Um, back when he was uh, touring in England later on in 1966 with the band, yeah. and he was being received pretty poorly.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: when you have somebody those loud, that's when, the, yeah. that's
2: those loud reactions. Yeah, yeah. Shows. when you
1: have somebody in the audience saying somebody yeah. should shoot this guy, yeah. that's a pretty bad reaction to your yeah. concert. Um, uh, that it's the moment of where that guy famously yes, yells, calls right. him Judas Ooh, he says yeah. Judas, and Bob's don't get it, Don't. Y- y- I don't believe you, you're yeah. a liar, and yeah. then he I think it's he or somebody else turns around and says, play fucking loud yeah. and what yeah, do they break right. into? They break it's into like this. a Rolling yeah. Stone, I mean that is the ultimate kind of like, okay, yeah. in this moment you're the Miss Lonely punk yeah. you're the guy <laughs> yeah, telling me, right. you're yeah. Miss Lonely you don't get it, yeah, and you're never right. gonna get it and I'm gonna go off and do this, and so <laughs> Later on, uh, Mojo and Uncut Magazine have called this Dylan's best song. Rolling Stone Magazine yeah. called it the number one of the greatest 500 rock songs of all time. It's yeah. number one. Yeah. Uh, which, again, i hard to argue. Um, the original lyrics sold at Sotheby's for $2 million.
2: Which, what? Which, and, <laughs> and, and there was more, you know, the original lyrics have a lot of the vomit, but they're, right. but they definitely, uh, maybe not the complete vomit, but they have a lot of, <laughs> uh, a lot more stuff that, you know, i think he's never done maybe he's done a, uh, another verse that is that that's, I, I wanted to run that down before this and i didn't that's uh well that that that's amazing
1: is that this is a song that he has not lyrically messed with for the most a, the yeah. only slight difference is uh on the on the refrain he'll often sing how does it feel to be without a home like a complete unknown sometimes he'll sing on your own yeah but most of the time he's left yeah. this alone which is unusual yeah. for most of his yeah. songs. Bruce Springsteen, when he inducted Bob Dylan in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame book. in 1986 said, the first time I heard Bob Dylan, it was I was in a car with my mother listening to WMCA and on came that snare shot that sounded like somebody kicked open the door to your mind. The way that Elvis freed your body, Dylan freed your mind. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm like, that is the greatest compliment I can imagine because that is exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, they later did a video for this song, strangely enough,
2: in 2013. It's actually a very hip video. Which is I'd amazing. Really it's it. an
1: interactive video where you are watching television, and no matter what channel you are watching, there's like a home shopping club, there's a you see WTF with Mark yeah. Maron, the, there's the, a the new The Property Show. Brothers are yeah, on there. The Property Brothers. They all are <laughs> like, singing, they are yeah. all mouthing the words, and no matter yeah. what ver whatever uh, time you click out to another channel, yeah. they're singing. Yeah. So it, it, I don't know what the purpose of that video yeah. was, in, 19, in 2013, to release a Like, for like a Stone video, but yeah. that shows us how, how still yeah. relevant it is that you could do this in, in 2013. It's kind of amazing. My personal history with this song is, the first time I ever saw Bob Dylan live, which is a very special moment for a Dylan fan, because yeah. you get that thing where you're like, I'm in the same building as this guy. Yeah. Like, this is, that, that's the guy. I'm in the same room was on the, the 1992 David Letterman 10th anniversary show. Oh. And what song did he sing? Yeah. Like a Rolling Stone. I, with my pal Dan is in the audience. we're there yeah. together. It was an amazing moment yeah. for me to be like, "I'm in the same room as Bob Dylan. That, that, you know, I couldn't get my brain around that. Um, I always like to talk about how many times he's performed this song. <laughs> he has performed this song 2075 times. Now. As of now it might be up to 22076 20, yeah, yeah. in the last hour yeah. I don't know I don't know where he is at this moment <laughs> right. but I mean this is a song that he clearly knows as much as he cares about delivering uh, you know a show for the audience right. uh, I don't know how much he cares about that at times yeah, sometimes I, wonder. I think he's you know not you so wonder, much right? but this is clearly something that he knows people are coming to see so it's like I want to ask you, like what do you how do you what do you feel like is the legacy of this thing? Why does it endure so long? 50 years after its creation, 54 years after its creation. Well,
2: you know, the share version. <laughs> I really wish I'd put I that mean, on my phone, yeah. Tom. Didn't,
0: you anybody? Didn't
2: tell me? Come on. Nobody's going to back me up and put that. I'm kidding. But um the the I think the legacy of it ultimately is we we've, we've sort of been talking about it. It's it's really The idea of what Bruce said about it being a a portal into ways of thinking. And he's showing you, in the course of these verses, different ways of thinking different ways of approaching situations you know he's a, he's always a trickster there's always multiple stuff going on that's why i think this literary crit anal, critical analysis of of him is is tedious because you know no, no, like, <laughs> it's no my matter like who it's about no you do you do other stuff uh, no matter who who any of these <laughs> no Woo! matter who uh, the, the 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 subject of the song is or or what there is that what he's trying to do is throw uh, throw stuff at people in a way that makes makes you think, and you know that line about you didn't pick up that that these people who are entertaining you are frowning and sneering at you, you know, and these idea the the idea that there is a life behind behind the curtain is always in play with him but it's really in play here and and it's like you know he's he's just saying check your head look at it from <laughs> another way and and look at whatever it is that that you know is on the table from another way and i i, I really feel like you know at a point uh in 1965 things were pretty declarative still in rock <laughs> and roll you know like the beatles were you know also about mind expansion but they were they, they, like you know it was later that they were getting into this sort of perspectival like don't take the man's word for anything like look at things from you know as many different angles as you can and, and th- this i think is the thing that like anybody i don't care if you hate dylan you know, yeah. Then, then listen to the Hendrix version. Then listen to you know some of the other people who have covered this. And and the, the 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 legacy of of covers of this song runs the gamut. I mean, there's Hendrix, there's Cher, there's a lot of other crazy ones. I think Engelbert Humperdinck recorded a version of this. I mean, you know, so so it's that kind of thing. But are those immediately rendered invalid because? You know they're they're like corny no i mean i think you learn something about the song each time and and i did with the share and the share is is not good and it (laughs) on spotify it cuts it ends very abruptly too i don't know whether that was like my uh free free version of spotify spotify's comment
1: on it maybe or something so i don't know I, I'm betting, I have a sneaking suspicion, Bob likes the um, Engelberg-Humperdinck version. He seems like that <laughs> yeah, kind of guy. Right. He just likes these strange yeah, versions. Yeah. So um, l- I do want to play a couple different versions, because this has appeared on a couple of live albums that he's done yeah. over the years. Uh, he had a, a 1978 record, the At Budokan yeah. uh, uh, tour. So let's play a little ver- little bit of the At Budokan version that he did. So, No snare drum there. kinda So there's that. So if you ever wondered what a uh, saxophone would sound like, unlike a Rolling Stone, now
2: you know. Mm. What do you think of that version? That's like a battle cry version. Yeah, I like it. I, I, I really like the fact that there's background vocals are... are the queens are, of rhythm. You know, yeah. They, the, like that adds something. You know, suddenly, and the, talk about a perspective change, suddenly it's not just him. Right. It, it, it changes the song when you hear another voice on right. it. Right. Yeah. When, when there is a, a, a few voices... It, th- so I like it for that. All right, yeah. That's a. It's a. That is not one of his most beloved uh, live albums. No. I, I still
1: like some things on it, but as Dylan fans, we just we mine through everything to find the things we yeah. like. So, um, and then let the one other live version. I wanted to play, which was from nineteen ninety four, the right. MTV unplugged version. Uh, I don't know if this was really technically unplugged because there's an organ in here. Oh you know no, I mean? there's
2: there, there was a full band. Right. Yes. Okay. I mean, all know, right, Bob. Yeah, was, whatever. I mean at that point. MTV, MTV Unplugged was really like it was beyond the original conceit of it being all acoustic. It, it quickly morphed into essentially like we're just gonna have cool, relatively down performances.
1: Yeah. But, um,
2: I, I will mention just as a little aside, originally for that show,
1: Bob had done these two shows at the Supper Club. Uh, and those were originally supposed to be recorded as the MTV unplugged shows, and apparently he yeah. didn't like how he looked in them or something, so he scotched right. it. And that's a damn shame because hey, that material is fantastic, and it's kind of more obscure material. Right. And I guess he was like, "Fine, I'll show up to MTV studios and I'll do hits. Right. Fine, I'm going to give you, but right. you want hits, I'll give you hits." So this is the MTV unplugged version. <laughs>
0: so far There's a bunch of time in your pride Didn't you? But because way down You're bound to fall You thought they were I'm kidding you You used to laugh about Everybody that was Yeah.
1: The, the thing I like about the, the little trivia I like about that one is that you have the bootleg of it which I don't own. Uh, uh, he starts playing the song and it's super slow and he's playing it in the wrong speed and the band... Doesn't know what he's doing, and he literally stops the song halfway through, and he's like, "What's going on?" I mean, the band was way ahead of me, and they start and they start all over again, which I love. I love. He just was like, "All right, I screwed up." I think that
2: happened a couple times. I was at one of the tapings for one of these shows. Wow! And I think that happened a couple times, and they they told you know they made one of those announcements before that said, you know, this is a thing we we may have to stop. You know, it's not going to be like a performance like a regular show. And, uh, and when they did, we were all, it was totally cool. It was, like, interesting, you know? It was, it was not, like, a train wreck stop, it, and it wasn't this song, so. Um, oh, I like it when you hear the little bits and pieces yeah. of him being, like, a regular guy, yeah. you know, just and being, like, he, the guy who's fronting a band. And at that time, I don't think he had, he was, you know, he was not performing like he, he came to perform right. during the never-ending tour phase. He was still, this was, like, a ramp up into that. I like
1: that version, and when he gets to the, yeah. the chorus, he actually drops it a little. Yeah. Like, he drops the tension down a little. Now, I mean, wh- what do you think about these versions that don't open with that rifle
2: shot? I mean, it's it's so different than I hear that crack at the beginning of the song. Uh, yeah, I you know, partly, I mean, I think they probably can't do it live just because now, the way they set up, the way the band sets up, I don't think you could start, have it start with the drums and have everyone... Be able to see that that right. was that was where it was where it was coming. I you know, and I know, but a lot of them use in-ear monitors, so maybe that would work. But I you know, I miss it. Right. You know, uh, but mainly what hit me about that was how slow it is. I mean, you <laughs> know, that ad, the the the. the The audience for that was in for an extra minute and a half of just them slogging through that (laughs) chord progression, you know, that's slow. I mean, you know, it really it shows you how key tempo is to all these songs for him as a singer in terms of how he's delivering it. And then for the band, like, you know, you're creating it's like you're conjuring a spell Mm -hmm. with this stuff. I think that's how he thinks of it in some way and you know you you it needs to happen it needs to unfold at a certain pace not necessarily the exact same tempo that of the original recording but within a a window where you know it feels like you're you, you have a chance to stay with it
1: there's a part in that version where he literally i think i don't i don't have the video but there's literally i don't think he opens his actual mouth i think he just kind of does like yeah. a puppet thing because he get <laughs> and i'm like he's just enjoying himself because yeah. at one point he he does the line about uh uh, uh, kicks for you. I think yeah. he literally goes like, kick you. Yeah. And I'm like, he's not even opening his mouth. He's not even <laughs> bothered. He's just having a good time. Yeah. You know, it's like, good. Yeah. so I mean, this is, this is just what, this is, the man has got so many songs that, that are the legend, that, that that are the, you know, the edifice yeah. of which he builds his career upon. But I mean, this is just one of the towering achievements and the idea that it came from this moment of desperation. This came from the moment of saying, maybe I don't want to even want to do this anymore. Right. And then to
2: find this Doorway into something and then took him on this whole new ride. It's just right. unbelievable. Well, and he has he said in interviews subsequent that, that this was a kickstart for the rest of the record. And when you listen to, like, Desolation Row, oh. you know, it, 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 the songs that came after this song that, you know, sort of use the same strategy uh, structurally where it's not, there's no, you know, the hook is very small. It comes at the, almost at the end of a verse, and it just kind of, you know, blinking, you miss it. It's not like he's hitting you over the head. This one actually is more where he's hitting you over the head. Um, but Desolation Row, you know, it's like he, that, 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 with these songs, with this record, he's really th- figuring out a new way to present his thinking. You I know, can't, it's a uh, new framework. I can't imagine
1: the, the 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 thought of like having to write eight more songs or nine more songs that are of this level. Well, he had this and he song, said, and they're like, all right, now they'll do a whole album's worth,
2: of. right? And Christ. and this though kicked the door open for him in the sense of, all right, creatively, I see a way to do more of this kind of thing. And you know, he said he, he described this as it was just like it was being whispered to him, yeah. like you know, the spirits were sending him this. And you know, one thing about Bob Dylan. He is very resourceful, so if he gets like a little bundle from somewhere, he's going to use it and, yeah. and he's going to make use of it in other ways and you know you could really and I'm sure someone has probably many someone's have i mean you know grill Marcus wrote a whole book about this song, which I haven't read all the way through, which I know is heresy to say, but you know it's a little bit of slow going there but um but the uh the uh this whole record has relationship to this song. I think this song really really did uh unlock some things for him. Absolutely. And you know, for his for his credit,
1: for his uh, as a reward, Tom Wilson got fired. <laughs> They moved yeah. Tom Wilson off to go produce the Velvet Underground, and they slotted in Bob Johnston to produce the rest right. of the record. And Bob Johnston's apparently role with Bob Dylan was to hit the record button. Yeah, that was the level of the producer that Bob Johnston brought to Bob Dylan. He was like, whatever. So thanks, Tom Wilson. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for producing this great iconic single. You're fired. Okay. Well, all right. So um, we are we are getting the signal that we have to wrap this show up. So um, you know, it, it's an amazing song. Anyone who's here who doesn't listen to it, for God's sake, listen to it. It's 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 endlessly rewarding. It never gets old. You, you, you keep you no matter what age you get, it, you yeah. find new corners of it, and that's what I find it. So I listen to it on the ride over here yeah. this morning. You know, and you just you just feel it. it I, I feel the way I, I when I heard it at 20, I feel like I do now that I'm <clears throat> much older. I, but it's you know. Uh, I get different things out of it. And that's an incredibly, amazingly elastic kind of thing. So we are going to wrap this up here to talk about Like a Rolling Stone. I have to thank a bunch of people before we sign off. Before I do that, though, I have to thank you, Tom. We said, here's the car waxing part. Um, I discovered Bob Dylan in, the, in art school, uh, what a cliche, in the 90s, uh, the very early 90s. And that was Bob at not a great period, yeah. really. And um, he did the, the folk, rec- he did the acoustic folk records. Good as I've been to you, and world gone wrong, which are superb world records. World gone wrong is a good record. But, but, yeah. you know, at the time, a lot of people were like, I think this guy doesn't have anything left to say. Right. You know, and so I was discovering Bob at a relatively, relatively fallow period where most of the media had left him behind. They were just like, all right, this guy's, you know, an oldies act. He doesn't love- he's covering Froggy Winter Court, and he had nothing left to say. But I started seeing Bob in concert every year. Me and my pal Dan would go, we make it a pilgrimage, to go every year and see Bob. And one of the traditions that I had after one or two shows, I would go see the show, normally usually in Philly, yeah. the next morning I would get the Philadelphia Inquirer and read your review. Because it was like, here was a kindred spirit, here was this guy who wow. is in the Philadelphia Inquirer, you know, yeah. just a couple of pages away from Ziggy, and it's like, this is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Like, you, you. Kinda. Like, kinda, yeah. <laughs> That's. I, but it was, like, how it, was. It, was like, it was like, here was a guy that appreciates this thing that I love that very few people seem to appreciate. So it is an amazing honor that you did this with well, me. I cannot believe can I, I got to sit can, here and talk I, with you. Can about I share
2: this. one detail about those, especially in the 90s? Absolutely. Uh, about those concert reviews. So we, they really did want them to appear the next day. That turned out to be really difficult in many venues because they didn't have a place, they didn't, there wasn't even necessarily a flat surface where you could put a Radio Shack TRS-80 <laughs> little computer that we carried to do these things on. And you used a phone modem. And so the whole thing was like really, really janky. It was not a good setup. Uh, and you would have to leave wherever your seat was in the middle of the show and then go find this place, this room, and hope that you could hear from this room. And the Spectrum was great, like that. It did have a press box. It had a real press box where the door was open. We could hear the concert. We could be there in that, you know, with a desk kind of space to work with. And you know, the deadline was like eleven fifteen or something. <laughs> Another so,
1: encore, Bob. Come so in. right.
2: So you didn't. You didn't even really. It was a complete like you're just grasping to come up with something to say, and oh, he's playing that, I better mention that. You know, that kind (laughs) of thing. It was not like the art of writing a review the way you'd want to do it. So. It,
1: it, it, it was just It was so rewarding To get the paper In the morning And, and read someone Who appreciated it The way I did So this is just Such an amazing honor oh, That I get to do you. this With you Thank you so thanks much So I me. want to do Some special thanks Before we wrap up I got to thank My pal David Ace Gutierrez uh, My best gal pal Kelly Courtney Who was a huge Assistance in getting This done My fellow members Of the Fire and Water Podcast Network Everything is awesome Indy Hall The Philly Podcast Studio The Tattooed Mom uh, The Philly Podcast Festival Thank you for being Part of it Tom, of course. And finally, I have to thank Bob. Uh, Wherever you are, Bob, uh, we love you and thank you for everything you have given us. So thanks everybody for coming.
0: Where doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging. You're next me. <laughs>